so last week, um, last week invited, Amy invited us to consider the inherent goodness of God. The simple, now let's see if we can do this together. The simple yet profound truth that God is good. Yeah, and all the time. For those of us who are reading along in the book, you'll know that that was a really big part of Jim, uh, James Brian Smith's story when he was writing, writing about the goodness of God. And so hopefully, whether through the literary genius of I love you, stinky face, or through how Amy walked us uh, through the healing of the man born blind in John 9, that truth that God is good took on new meaning for you. The soul training exercise that Jim Smith invited us into last week was to observe extended periods of silence throughout the week and to spend some time being immersed in and attentive to creation around us. Those practices come from generations of wisdom among Christians who are seeking to align themselves to the goodness of God. And I think Jim Smith, the author, is really on to something quite important when he says that God who is good can only reach us when we are quiet. The God who is good can only reach us when we are quiet. And I imagine it's the sort of thing that this guy, Blaise Pascal, who was a French theologian, had in mind when he said, all of humanity's problems stem from a man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I think there's a lot there for us to ponder. This week, we turn our attention to the good news that the God Jesus reveals is infinitely trustworthy. The God that Jesus reveals to you and to me is infinitely trustworthy. God's trustworthiness is, of course, an extension of his goodness because someone who's not altogether good ultimately cannot be trusted. But someone who is the very foundation of goodness is indeed infinitely worthy of our trust. And we see those things intersect in our gospel passage this morning, which comes from John 6. Let me read this together. We'll be reading from 48 to 53 and then 59 to 69. Jesus is speaking and he says, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. 
From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most poignant questions Jesus ever posed to his disciples was this. Who do you say that I am? So important was that question that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that exact conversation in their Gospels. Now, John is trying to do something a little bit different in his Gospel than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and yet he does record this other exchange in order to help make the same point. That the most important question the disciples ever faced. And so, not so coincidentally, the most important question you and I will ever face is just this. Who do you regard Jesus to be? To really get what John's doing here, we kind of have to see it within the larger context of the narrative that's unfolding in John 6. At the very beginning of the chapter, what we see is Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness. Now, when Jesus does that, to what Old Testament uh, event do you think that that corresponds? What does that sound like to you? Jesus actually mentioned it later in John 6 when we read. He said, your ancestors ate manna in the desert. So when Jesus shows up and creates food, people are thinking, hey, this dude's like Moses. Moses, our great leader who gave us manna in the desert. And immediately after that, what we see John doing is we see John recording an episode where Jesus walks on water. What do you think that's meant to allude to? Now we're going all the way back to Genesis, where the author of Genesis says, God hovered over the waters. And so we have John saying, Jesus is not just Moses. Jesus is God. And that's the context in which people are coming to Jesus and asking him, okie doke, this seems like a big deal. What must we do to do the work that God requires? To which Jesus replies, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Or we might say it like this, it's not about the work that you do, it's actually about the work that I am doing And if you want to honor God, trust me. Trust me. And so the expressions and the figures of speech that Jesus is using here in the passage that we read are meant as kind of a rhetorical device. It's as though Jesus is trying to help people clarify for themselves, is my trust in Jesus dependent on my understanding of him and what he's doing and what he's saying? Or does it come from somewhere deeper? That's what Jesus is on about when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. This came home to me this week in this passage that I read as I was studying by a theologian named William Barclay who said, in the last analysis, Christianity is not a philosophy which we accept, nor a theory to which we give allegiance. It is a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. It is the allegiance and the love 
which one gives because their heart will not allow them to do anything else. This is the very essence of the Christian faith. It's not an intellectual exercise. So can I, I want to ask you a question this morning that someone once posed to me and it absolutely stopped me in my tracks because I had never thought about it before and quite honestly, it's something I still come back to, I bet, on a weekly basis. And the question is this, do you trust that Jesus was the smartest person who ever lived? Really? Now, I mean, try not to answer that question pietistically. We all know that the right answer to every question asked in the four walls of this building is Jesus, right? And that's not how I'm asking you this morning. I mean, do you really believe it? Do you really believe when you read these words, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, Pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So the question is to you and to me, do we actually regard those sayings and everything else that Jesus said, not as religious platitudes, but as counsel from the smartest person who ever lived? I still have to ask myself every day if I really believe Jesus in that sense, because the idea, do I trust Jesus as my Savior? Someone who absorbed the consequences of my sin? Sure, no problem. That sounds good. Somebody else paid a penalty for me? Sounds good. But do I actually trust Jesus when it comes to how I live my life? Do I trust that any and other, any and all other counsel pales in comparison to the wisdom that Jesus offers. Or to take it one step further to the place that John is actually trying to take us in this passage, can we say with Peter, in the midst of Jesus saying things, asking things of us that are hard to understand or accept, would we say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Because Peter says that, what he doesn't mean is, well, I really want to go to heaven someday, and so I guess I'm just going to have to play along here. That's not what Peter means. No, he means that his personal experience with Jesus compels him to believe that he is in touch with the author of life itself. That's what he means. Which means it would be the epitome of foolishness to turn away from Jesus or to dismiss what he's saying to us, inviting us into simply because we don't grasp it or understand it. The God that Jesus reveals and wants you and I to know is infinitely trustworthy. And out of that truth springs another really critical line of thought that I want us to consider this morning. It's actually a line of thought that we have to have in mind each of these weeks. When we're going through this book and talking about these attributes of the good and beautiful God, that it's not merely an exercise in believing certain things about God, but in knowing that we are called to take on these same characteristics. Again, it's not an intellectual exercise. So when we say God is good... 
We're also saying you and I are invited on a journey of becoming, in an ever-deepening sense, truly good people, all the way down. When we say that God is trustworthy, it's that you and I are invited on a journey of becoming, in an ever-deepening sense, profoundly trustworthy people. We are made in God's own image, and so our lives are about reclaiming all the ways that we were meant to reflect the beauty of our Creator that have been stolen or corrupted by the realities of sin in the world. We have been robbed of who we were created to be, and Jesus wants us to take it back. This is what Jesus discloses to us in His life and ministry. He represents the sort of humanity that God always intended us to know. So this morning, then, it's important that we ask, if, God, if the God that Jesus reveals is infinitely trustworthy, what does it mean? What will it look like for me as a disciple of Jesus to grow in my character as a trustworthy person? I've thought about this a lot this week. And I've settled on at least three fundamental questions that I think we ask when it comes to the issue of trusting someone else. Three of these questions that we ask. The first one is this. When we're approaching someone else and we're trying to figure out intuitively, is this someone I can trust? I think we're asking, are you committed to my well-being? As we engage other people, one of the things we're instinctively trying to sort out is, is this person someone who seems genuinely concerned for me? Are they really present when I'm talking? Do they ask me questions that demonstrate that they really want to know me? Are they mindful of my feelings and needs? Again, this is a question of humility. When we ask this of other people, we're asking a question about humility, because humility isn't so much about our being self-effacing or talking ourselves down. That's not humility. Humility is really about our posture towards others and our willingness to attribute worth to them, not because of what they can do or be for us, but simply because we see in them intrinsic value. That's humility. The second question I think we ask is, goes like this. As I disclose my vulnerabilities or my weaknesses or my failures to you, are they met with compassion and understanding and grace? You feel this? We're trying to suss out, can I trust this person? This is a whole other level where we try to determine is someone is trustworthy based on how they respond to areas of our lives where we might be insecure. As we give people access to the parts of our stories and lives of which we might be ashamed or which bring us pain to think about that we want to kind of keep locked away, we'll be looking for whether this is met with judgment and the idea of sort of like relational distancing or if it's met with empathy and the idea of I come close and I'm willing to strengthen a relationship with you despite whatever weaknesses or vulnerabilities or failures you might be sharing with me. This is a question of hospitality. Hospitality. 
We tend to associate hospitality with entertaining people in our homes or in other venues, but the real idea of hospitality is creating spaces and environments where people experience gracious welcome and relational openness and healing. Hospitality, after all, is where we get our word hospital, of course. It's where you go to experience healing. The last question is this that we're asking of, our, of people as we engage them. Is there something in you that you freely share and feels like a gift to me? A final thing on our trusting radar is that we're always searching for whether or not the people that we engage embody something that attracts us to them. It might be some insight they have into life or something about their personality or some vision or ambition that they have, but we're always asking subconsciously, what is it that this person seems to uniquely bring into the world and can I trust that it's a gift and not just a ploy for some of their own agenda? This is a question of generosity. We ask this question because there's really two kinds of giving. There's one kind that comes with various kinds of strings attached to it and another that comes with no strings. It's simply offered as a blessing. And it's that latter kind that represents true generosity. I think that we're always asking these questions of whether or not we can trust some person or some group. I'm quite certain that there's other questions that we could name and different ways of stating these, but. Hopefully they resonate and make a point that's common to all of us as we're looking, trying to evaluate people's trustworthiness. Now just for one moment, consider them in relationship to Jesus. Think about how the trustworthiness of God was displayed in the life and ministry of Jesus through his humility. That God himself would take on flesh, come among us and die in our place. Consider the hospitality of Jesus, how Jesus cared for the poor and the oppressed with tenderness and compassion, how Jesus even said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Or Jesus' generosity. Consider the open and free posture that Jesus had toward everyone that he encountered and how the gifts of Jesus, the gifts that he offers us, never have any strings attached to them. Maybe the best way to summarize all this is to point out that trustworthiness isn't something that we can cultivate directly. We can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm pretty sure I'm going to decide to be a more trustworthy person today. It doesn't work like that. Rather, what we call it is an experience in someone else or cultivate in our own lives. We cultivate postures of humility and hospitality and generosity. And as we grow in those, we become truly trustworthy people. And so we're in a good place to ask ourselves those questions this morning. How am I seeking to cultivate a sense of true humility in my life? Where do I have opportunities to practice hospitality in the way of Jesus? In what ways can I demonstrate a spirit of generosity to those around me? It's through our pursuit of those things that people will inevitably move toward us as those that they perceive they can trust because trustworthiness, like all of the attributes that we're talking about within relationship to a God who is good and beautiful, are irresistible, right? 
we all will always gravitate towards people and groups that we experience as truly just trustworthy. We were made to crave that, to desire it, to have it in our lives. And so when we cultivate it, people will be drawn towards it. Now, if I can, I want to wrap up by mentioning how this connects to something that's deeply personal for Amy and I, and I assume is important for you all as well. And that's in saying this. There has never been a time in American history when people trusted the church less than they do right now. Never. I want to share a few statistics with you uh, that you might not be aware of. Did you know that for the first time in American history, a quarter of the population claims no religious affiliation whatsoever? Atheists, agnostics, or this category of like, eh, just nothing. A quarter of the American population. That's from up around 7% in 1979 when I was born. It was around 10% in 1997 when I graduated from high school. And it's just shy of 25% in 2018. It is the fastest growing religious trend in America right now. People who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. Did you know that 30% of all practicing Christians quit the church during the pandemic? A third. Just done. Didn't go to another church. Didn't just do online stuff. Did nothing. When asked, a full third of practicing Christians said, I just stopped. Did you know that 57% of non-Christians believe that the church has no or a negative impact on their communities. More than half of all the people that you might talk to who aren't Christians look at the church and say, it has no good in my community, or their impact is negative. Over half. And these numbers, friends, are not stable. They are growing quickly, all of them. The natural question, of course, is why? And I would never want to suggest that the answer to that question isn't multifaceted. There's a variety of things we would need to look at and talk about. But at the same time, it should be painfully obvious to us that a very significant part of that puzzle increasingly is that people do not trust the church. They don't. They don't experience the church as humble or hospitable or generous. Listen, tomorrow night I've been invited to sit around a fire with 10 or 12 other guys, all of whom fit into those demographics that I just gave you, who don't trust the church, who've had bad experiences, or think that the church is just completely irrelevant to the things that matter most to them. So I'll sit around that fire and I'll just listen to stories and ask questions. I'm not sharing any of that with you this morning to depress you. I'm sharing it with you to enlist you. Friends, our church has enjoyed a rich 200 years of history in this community. And Lord willing, there's at least another 200 years in front of us. But listen, here is my promise to you as your pastor. I promise you that the only way that comes to pass is if we absolutely confound people's expectations, demonstrating in no uncertain terms that we are a church that people can trust. That's the only way we have a future. 
that when people experience us as a church, they trust us to be humble, showing them that we deeply care for their well-being, that they experience us as they can trust us to be hospitable, showing people that we will go out of our way to create spaces and environments that meet them where they're at, treating their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses and their failings with compassion and understanding and grace. Showing people that they can trust us to be generous by committing ourselves to be a gift to this community with no strings attached. All that is a really big deal. I mean, if there's much that keeps Amy and I up at night, it's that kind of stuff. And it'll take a long time. It's going to take years to develop that and extend that kind of culture in our community. But it is precisely the journey that God invites us into as his people. As we follow Jesus, that's where God is leading us always. And it's the place, it it starts with us tending to our relationship with God, whom Jesus says is infinitely trustworthy. And unless we know that God, there's no chance whatsoever that we will extend that spirit of generosity and hospitality and humility into our community. In the book, uh, The Good and Beautiful God, the author this week invites us into a practice of counting our blessings. He says, most of us are accustomed to waking up and thinking about our problems. And so the exercise he's recommending for us this week helps us shift our focus away from the few things that are wrong to the many things that are beautiful and wonderful. Which is a great practice, but just to connect it to this sermon this morning, I would say that practice also invites us into an opportunity to reflect on how does God, how has God, how is God demonstrating humility, hospitality, and generosity in our lives? And it's our being willing to name and reflect on those things that will have this effect on us, this transformative effect in our hearts and in our lives. Unto the ultimate effect being that, like Peter, we become so enthralled with the life that Jesus offers us that we just can't imagine departing from it. And more than that, that we desire to become the sort of people and the sort of church that goes to great lengths to offer that life to others. So here's how I would like to invite us to respond this morning, because it does begin with our ability to connect with a God who is infinitely trustworthy, to meditate and consider that. So I'm inviting us to pray prayers this morning, saying, God, would you, you have the words of eternal life. Help me to trust you in. And let's just name this morning the areas of our lives where we desire for our trust in God to grow. We'll say, Lord, in your mercy, and then we'll all respond by saying, amen. Let's pray. Jesus, quickly, I just say that I am so thankful for you, God in the flesh, who demonstrates to us the infinitely trustworthiness of yourself because you are humble and you are hospitable and you are generous with us in unfathomable ways. Thank you for all the ways in which that's true. Help us to reflect on those this week and transform us, God, from the inside out that we might become extensions of your trustworthiness. God, you have the words of eternal life. Help me to trust you 
in listening to friends who have been hurt and wounded by the church. Lord, in your mercy.